Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the Wingnuts and Wingmen edition. I'm Shane Harris of the Daily Beast, here with my wingnuts. No, oh, wow, ah, we're your wingmen. You're my wingmen. My wingmen and women. And my wing persons. <laughs> my wing persons. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Benjamin Wittes. Hello, Ben. Hey. Noted wingnut. I'm not a wingnut. No, you're just an apologist. I'm, a, I'm, I'm an apologist. You're a handmaiden hand of power. A handmaiden of power. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Uh, Tamara Kaufman Wittes, wing woman. Hello, Tamara. And a little bit nutty, too. And a little bit nutty, too. Susan Hennessy, not at all nutty. Not at all nutty. Very wingy. <laughs> Lovely wings on you. Beautiful wings. Yes, like beautiful them. wings. Spread your wings and fly. Uh, yeah, so speaking of wingnuts and wingman, Ted Cruz released his list of foreign policy advisors today. We like to do a little campaign update at the top of the show. And um, yeah, there's some there's some wingy people on this list. I think we can have real confidence in Frank Gaffney as an advisor to yes. a potential president. Potential president. I mean, yeah. the most notable thing about the list is the pairing of wing nuts with non wing nuts, right? <laughs> right, if it was right, just right. Wing nut list, you'd be like, oh, all right. Well, he's crazy, and he takes advice from crazy people. But like, how these people are interacting with one another, how you would even people to take advice across the spectrum of people? Mm-hmm. Well, look, it's not unprecedented for advisors with differing views, sometimes wildly differing views, to advise the same candidate. Um, but typically that's when you have a large group or, right. you know, and this this collection, which includes Elliot Abrams on the one hand and Michael Ledeen and Frank Gaffney on the other, um, seems to be... Well, I guess I would say two things. Number one, maybe an indicator that um, at least some members of the Republican foreign policy establishment, i.e. Elliot Abrams, are willing to sign up with Cruz. Um, But on the other hand, that, you know, there's not going to be any ideological coherence on foreign policy in this campaign, and maybe it just reflects the broader debate within the Republican Party. But I I think it's fair for somebody like Elliot Abrams if you're part of the Never Trump crowd, uh, and is he part well, of the Never Trump Well, I don't know crowd? if he's ever used the hashtag, but if you're, but if you're somebody who is really, really offended by Trump and a conservative, I could see saying uh, it is of paramount importance to deny the nomination to Trump. There is really one mm. option left for doing it, and if we believe that that person is going to be president, shouldn't they have the benefit of establishment foreign policy advice rather than hearing, or in addition to hearing, from Frank Gaffney and Ledeen? By the way, I, I, I want to say that you know all lawfarers have a deep and abiding oh, uh, beef yeah. with Frank Gaffney, which we is that indeed. if you go to the uh, site 
lawfare.com or lawfare.org. Which you it, should not do. Which you should not do. Instead do not of do that. lawfareblog.com. Which you should do. Which you should do. Always. Every you day. will find yourself at Frank Gaffney's website. Uh, Frank Gaffney's. Frank Gaffney's Islamophobic website. Yes. Right, right. So and, a particularly hateful. Right. Frank and Gaffney you will uh, please take a moment when this happens to you by accident, sort of like when I used to go to whitehouse.com by accident. Sure. <laughs> when it was For a, research. When it was a porn site. Um, Wait, it's not anymore? No, I don't think it's been shut down. Oh, um, I haven't checked lately. <laughs> um, Hold on. And, um, you know, you'll go there and take a moment to pause and bemoan the fate uh, of Lawfare, which has tried and tried and tried to get Frank Gaffney to part with that URL and has so far never gotten the courtesy of a response. Well, maybe if President Cruz gets elected and Frank Gaffney gets a senior position in the administration, he'll let the website go. Yeah, that would maybe be a, a, of, of cold The silver comfort. lining. Yeah. Look, but how much do you think is actually about getting advice from your advisors versus using your advisors to signal things to certain groups of people? Well, let's let's ask the presidential advisor exactly. on the panel. <laughs> I'm looking at you, Tammy. Uh, okay, but I think that's why it's so interesting that you have what seems like a motley collection of people signed up with the cruise campaign. Um, because what are you signaling? You're signaling that your campaign embodies a set of ideological crises of identity within the Republican Party on foreign policy. Oh, that's a great message. Right. And I think there's some, there's something about having wildly different views, sure, but then there's having wild views. And Frank Gaffney, in addition to being a noted Islamophobe, has also been a major funder of research into the theory that the financial collapse of 2008 was the result of Muslim terrorists engaging <coughs> in the sale of, of in short selling of stocks. Wow! Like I mean, and you've seen these these things get peddled around in journalist circles a bit of these really wild kind of stories, and you know, and the belief that like it's one thing to believe that the administration is like selling out the Middle East to Iran. It's another thing to think that like you know, the banks were crashed by. Iranian-sponsored terrorists who like read the Big Short or something. Wouldn't I guess they wouldn't have read the Big Short, but I mean, you know what I mean? Like wall? quants, terrorist quants. Yeah, <laughs> wouldn't you love to be in the fl a fly on the wall in the yeah. Elliot Abrams Frank Gaffney discussion? <laughs> Actually, I would. I would. <laughs> I would. I, I, Sitting there with my little fly-sized martini. <laughs> <laughs> my desire to be a fly is pretty limited, actually, on or off the wall. Oh, all right. More to come on that one. Donald Trump, by the way, notably, still not as revealed. But he consults with himself. He, he does consult with himself. Because he, he has himself. a very good brain. Wow. A, a big great one. Brain. A great It's huge. A big, giant in Beautiful brain. straw hair. Do you know what that made me think of, that line? It made me think of Winnie the Pooh, who is a bear of very little brain. Oh. <laughs> but a lot of heart. I never it thought I would compare Donald Trump and Winnie their the Pooh, hair, but today his, did it for their me. Their hair, their fur is the same color. And is like piglet. There's a lot of things. <laughs> This yeah. is a rich metaphor. We'll work on it. Next, yeah. next week on National Security. There's some kind of pig going on there. Anyway. Um, all right. This week on the show, President Obama nominates Merrick Garland to the Supreme Court. Merrick Garland, stealth national security justice judge. Not, Not really so stealth. stealth. Yeah. Uh, an American ISIS defector is in Kurdish custody, and major U.S. websites have been delivering malware to their readers, plus, as always, object lessons. Um, so let's start with just like the, the big news uh, of the day, of uh, the week. President Obama has nominated Merrick Garland, chief judge of the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. Um, we thought that maybe this nomination would go absolutely nowhere, whoever the president picked, but in Garland he has picked someone who 
has earned the praise of conservatives in the past, uh, is one of the more well-regarded, well-liked, well-respected judges on the bench by conservatives and liberals. And we're even starting to see some cracks now in this Republican sort of, you know, uh, um, a barrier where they're saying maybe now we'll consider him in a lame duck session if Hillary Clinton wins. Well, and ha a half dozen have said that they will meet with him. Right. Despite That's their started. earlier declared intention that not to would. do so. Right. right. In including Chuck Grassley. Right. Right. The chairman of the Judiciary Committee. Uh, so, Ben, you had like a really uh, a good piece on this uh, on Lawfare, but... Actually, you know, can I just say that Ben called the Merrick Garland you nomination? You did call the Merrick Garland he nomination. Did. I, I called it the afternoon that Scalia died, actually. Um, uh, not as a predictive matter, but just as a normative matter, that I thought it was the right answer to the problem created by Scalia's death. Um, and it actually seems to be something like the logic of what Obama did, which is, you know, put somebody forward who is so moderate that it would make the other side look completely unreasonable not to move him and see if you can develop cracks in the in the apparent brick wall by doing so. But isn't just making them seem unreasonable? In some way, I think he's putting, um, it's not just optics, he's putting a real test to them. He's saying, all right, I'm putting someone before you who is almost certainly better than you'll get from Hillary Clinton, in, sort of in terms of their, the ideological acceptability, and probably is better than what you would get from Trump, um, who's almost certain to sort of nominate a friend or sort of some unknown commodity. Um, you know, so I think that right now the Republicans really have to ask themselves, all right, you know, sort of where are we in the election cycle? What is the odds that they get, that somebody gets elected who gives them a better candidate? It's also, I think, it was a choice for the White House how they wanted to use this issue to help Democrats frame a case in the yep. campaign. And there were two ways to do it. One was to put up, you know, a liberal standard bearer that Democrats could rally around and say, you have to elect us so we can get this person on the court. Um, and the other way to do it was to put somebody up who's so incredibly qualified and reasonable that it just makes the Republicans look 100% obstructionist for the sake of being obstructionist. And they went for the latter choice. So it's a it's an appeal to the center, not an appeal to the base. And I think that's real. that was an interesting choice. And I also think, I, I wonder how congressional Democrats who are going to be running on this issue um, feel about that choice. So, you know, we, we had a, I, I think for purposes of rational security listeners, I, you know, the interesting feature of Merrick Garland is how much experience he has in the areas of concern to this uh, podcast. You know, we had a debate on Lawfare recently. Uh, one, of, one of our contributors wrote in this essay that basically said, hey, we need a national security expert on the Supreme Court. It's a real deficiency of the current crop of nine justices that, you know, none of them with the sort of limited exception of Elena Kagan, has any real experience in this area. And uh, another person, uh, Adam Klein, who uh, actually clerked for Justice Scalia re relatively recently, wrote a response that said, actually, you don't really need a national security expert. It's really much more important to have, you know, a first-rate generalist who's, you know, got an appropriate sort of philosophical uh, orientation and knows how to, you know, do his job. And I think what's interesting about Merrick Garland is he really is both. That this is somebody who, you know, has 
19 years of experience on the bench as a sort of very highly regarded judge, but who also, from the point of view of, of our listenership, is somebody who has a lot of sort of granular experience in the national security space. This is somebody who's run a major counterterrorism investigation and prosecution, the Oklahoma City case. Uh, this is also somebody who was served at the senior levels of the Justice Department at a time when the Justice Department was really, uh, you know, reorganizing to some degree in uh, to deal with with sort of post Cold War terrorism issues and sort of the the merging of kind of law enforcement and intelligence in some areas. And this is somebody whose career on the D.C. Circuit happens to coincide with a period in which the D.C. Circuit had 20-plus major Guantanamo cases, a series of military commission cases, and a whole bunch of civil lawsuits that implicated national security concerns to one degree or another. And so I was trying to think yesterday sort of like, what's the universe of people you could possibly appoint to the Supreme Court who have more national security experience than Merrick Garland. And the only one I could think of was Michael Chertoff, right, mm -hmm. who's also been a circuit court not a, a, a judge. People forget that, that he served on the Third Circuit. Um, I mean, you know, but who, who were sort of jurists of, 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 rep, of repute uh, who also have very substantial national security experience. It's a really limited universe of people. And um, so I think it's an interesting uh, needle threading by the president, I'm sure not a conscious feature of his decision making, um, but, but one that I think makes Garland kind of qualitatively different from any other nominee in the last 20 years or so, maybe more. There's one thing I wonder is if it is a conscious factor in his decision making. This <clears throat> choice signals to me that the president, I mean, A, you wouldn't nominate this person if you didn't think you could live with him, right? Because, I mean, you, the last thing you want is the Republicans to call your bluff and nominate someone you actually didn't want. Signals that he's pretty confident Hillary Clinton is going to be president because he's not taking the opportunity even just to make a, a stand and nominate a very liberal uh, judge <clears throat> or nominate like a Sri Srinivasan or someone like this. I think he knows that Hillary Clinton is going to come along and have the chance to nominate three possibly justices in the next four years, right? Right. And fundamentally, like, reshape the face of the court. And that, Well, it's either that or it's a judgment he couldn't do that, that with this, this one, nomination one. is one of the things he can do to make it more likely yes. that she will win. Or, honestly, there, there's even it's a great a get out of the more, vote effort, yeah. like, a more honest reason for the selection, and that is just that he agrees with Garland, right? So, yeah. so the reason that Garland is a moderate is not necessarily because he kind of splits the baby on all of the issues, but because his alignment is sort of, um, you know, relatively progressive on social issues, um, maybe more favorable towards the government on, on issues related to the Fourth Amendment, um, you know, scope of privacy, certainly standing. Um, I, I would actually argue that if Barack Obama had to sort of put down his actual uh, beliefs in the various outcomes of cases based on his interpretation of the law, as opposed to just sort of his, his pure ideology, I think maybe he would agree with Garland on a lot of these issues. Right. So well, and and to sort of uh, emphasize that theme of sincerity, which I which I think is appropriate, even though we're in a very political season and we can be very cynical. Um, 
despite the meat grinder that this nominee has just been dropped into in a partisan sense, it was really moving to watch the announcement and to see Garland, you know, go up to the podium and say, this is the greatest honor yeah. of my life. Oh, he, and, he was choked you know, up. He was, he was really was choked really, up. He was moved. The gravity of the occasion, mm -hmm. you know, the, that component of our system, it's still the most respected institution of government in the United States. Except amongst, the military. Right. Um, but, you know, among the three branches, it's head and shoulders above the other two mm -hmm. with the American public. And, and so it, it was just so wonderful in the midst of all this hilarity and inanity and misery of the political season to have this one moment that was really quite sincere and profound and important and moving. I just want to pick up on Susan's point. Um, you know, I think if you're the president, whether you're a left president or a right president, there are certain things that you have to do. And a lot of them implicate the national security space. And so the, the, the problem for a, a lefty president is that some of the things that you have to do and that you come to believe are appropriate for you to do are not exactly consistent with the ideology of the political movement that you come from or that you, and that you may believe yourself. And, um, you know, Obama is somebody who has a civil libertarian soul, but he's also gets the intelligence briefings every morning. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he needs a Supreme Court that reflects his philosophical views to the extent that he has the authority to make nominations. You want that. You want that as a legacy matter. But you also want a Supreme Court that's not going to tell you you can't do all those things you need to do. Um, a lot of them in the surveillance space, some of them in Obama's case in the detention space. Um, and, you know, there's a value for somebody like that in somebody like, you know, a Merrick Garland, who uh, is pretty hard-assed about that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, even while being, there's no reason to think he won't be a part of a, a liberal block about, you know, conventional social uh, divisive issues that we think about the Supreme Court as just, you know, as riven by politics about there's every reason to think he would be on the on the liberal side of those, but not in the sense of sort of disabling the presidency from, you know, in, in national security areas. Okay, stay tuned. Uh, all right, next up, uh, an American ISIS defector. There is one. He's a real person. He's a real boy. A defector uh, to ISIS no, 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 or no, no, from ISIS? Defector from ISIS. Interesting. An American ISIS defector from ISIS. So a uh, 26-year-old Virginia man named uh, Mohammed Jalal Kois. I believe he uh, comes from a Palestinian-American family. Uh, at some point in the past several months, leaves his home in a uh, leafy cul-de-sac in northern Virginia and makes stopovers in Europe, gets to Turkey, and goes across the border into Syria. Uh, as of late January, he's fighting with ISIS in Iraq, apparently decides he's had enough of that, hightails it out, and then is captured by Peshmerga forces earlier this week as he is leaving Mosul and trying to cross into Kurdish territory. So is he a, is, is he a defector 
Or is he a deserter who got caught? Yeah, that was my question. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> He's the Bo Bergdahl of ISIS. <laughs> uh, it's still so. This is a bit of an unknown, a bit of an unknown. But so, a video emerged this week of this guy uh, walking up to Peshmerga forces near Sinjar. They, they reportedly they had seen him out uh, uh, on the line, started shooting at him. I guess he then identifies himself, comes up. And you can hear him talking, saying he's from the United States. You know, they're like, what are you doing here? He doesn't want to talk too much, doesn't want the cameras on. Uh, he's carrying Turkish currency, three cell phones, and a Virginia driver's license. And uh, it, so, I'm travel. also carrying yeah. all those things. Yeah, yeah. yeah. totally. So they, apparently they don't confiscate your driver's license when you're in ISIS. Because uh, <laughs> yeah. um, they may need you, you to drive one they of may those need you to drive. Jeeps. And... Right, exactly. Well, this made me wonder, too. So this brought up a number of questions, the first of which was, you know, is the United States going to try and get this guy back? Um, it does not appear to be a matter of much urgency in the State Department or the Justice Department. How reporting a suggests. right? So, yeah. there's an, and there's a precedence for, for this, right? I mean, there was a Supreme Court case on this, right, where there was a guy who was a U.S. person who was in Iraq, and he, didn't he, like, file a habeas petition or something, and he uh, wanted to come back? So and they said, no, so sorry, you're in Iraq, <laughs> bye-bye. Um, yes, there have been uh, a number of such cases, Um not all of them. I'm not sure which one you're you're talking about. There have been a number of cases in which people have uh, alleged um, that the gov U.S. government is uh, sort of constructively responsible for their detention. The courts have not had a lot of time for that idea. So it appears that he's at least for the time being uh, Munaf V. Garin. Oh, mu uh, yes. Okay. That that is. A slightly different issue. Okay, slightly different. But there appears to be no real urgency to get him back. Uh, it's not clear whether he's being interrogated by U.S. authorities. The Kurds say they are interrogating him. You would think that this person would have, you know, some pretty compelling information But he provide. wasn't with them very long. Not with them very long, which leads to me to, like, the more interesting story here mm -hmm. in this, I think, which is that there is anecdotal evidence, if you kind of talk to people in the military and the intelligence community, that ISIS defections slash desertions are up. Mm -hmm. yes. That they're losing territory. It's actually getting harder to bring recruits in because a lot of the crossing points in Turkey are being Fine. locked and down. And because we blew up all of their and because money. because we blew the shit out of their cash. Uh, they've had to cut salaries. They've had to raise taxes. They've had to raise prices for services. And there's and this. And they've gained a little bit of a reputation for putting their new foreign recruits on the front lines as cannon fodder. Isn't right. That right. Right. So you got to wonder, like, did this guy show up here and say, like, this isn't at all what I signed up this for. This is not fun. This is not what <laughs> I, I thought. This, was gonna this be is fun. not what you promised it's me in nice. the cat video, which they use, by the way. And it just, it's, it really, it, it's there's the, there's the obviously very interesting legal slash diplomatic issue of what do you now do when there's a U.S. citizen, the first American ISIS fighter to be captured on the battlefield. Mm -hmm. So he has that uh, uh, dubious distinction. Uh, but what, you know, does this signal that there's some kind of cracks in their recruitment strategy? And if that's true, and they are losing territory, according to a study I just saw that Jane's put out this morning, I mean, it leads to the question, like, are these positive signs? People are leaving the ranks. The supply lines are being cut. I mean, hey, the Russians, not that the Russians were actually attacking ISIS, but they're pulling out of Syria. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's a, well. So it goes back to what do we understand ISIS's business model to be? Yeah. Okay, and so we had this assumption. Of course, we know how they emerged. They emerged from a sort of insurgent movement that didn't rely on a territorial base. But then, 
we had this model of them as a movement that cared a lot about governance, about mm -hmm. holding territory, having population under their control, raising revenue, providing services. And then after the Paris attacks, I think that model, analysts started rethinking that model. And ISIS started speaking, um, the ISIS leadership started speaking more about its broader objectives um, beyond sort of the creation of this territorial entity, this caliphate. And so, I, I, you know, you can look at it and say, well, it's clearly a blow to the territorial component of ISIS, but does it signal that they are on the road to defeat? Well, part of the problem is that we've never really understood, and certainly none of the governments in the anti-ISIS coalition have articulated, what defeat means right. or what it looks like, because we don't yet have a clear um, handle on what this movement is actually about. Do you guys think we should, that the U.S. government should try to get him back? I mean, as a matter of principle, I mean, should we allow you, or should we say, no, you turned your back on your country, you went to fight with a foreign terrorist group that's declared, you know, war against us that we're essentially in combat with. You were on another country's soil. They are engaged in a military uh, conflict with them. Not, granted, you know, a non-state actor, but, I mean, let the Iraqis try them, right? You know, look, I, I certainly don't think that we should not try and get someone back as a punitive measure, right? So sort of, I mean, all joking and laughing aside about right. that, right? Like, the, the law really should dictate here. And he may have made it just a gigantic mistake. Right. Yeah. I, I think the question the United States has to ask are, um, you know, what are sort of the sovereignty considerations? What are the implications right. to our national security to the extent we attempt to assert legal authority here? Is there um, intelligence value in trying to get him back or not? Exactly. You know, what What are the odds? What's going to happen if he comes back? Is this is this going to be something that's tribal in federal court? Is this going to be, you know, the non-Guantanamo, whatever the sort of the next thing is going to be? Um, you know, so I think all of those interests have to be considered, and I think it's reasonable. I don't think that there's but some sort of... none of those are principled, none of those are responsive to Shane's question. Shane's question is, as a matter of principle, should we take the view that when one of our people... Goes and fights for an enemy. For, we, should, we should get them back. Right. What's and I, the principle? I think the answer to that is there's no principle. Um, I mean, I, I think there may be prudential reasons why you'd want to get him back and deal with him yourself, like that you trust your people more than you trust the Peshmerga. Uh, to the extent he's being abused, uh, you probably have, you know, consular obligations to protect your people. But I don't think we have a. I don't think there's any obligation on the part of the State Department to spend energy advocating for the repatriation of an American who signs up with enemy forces but, and but fights But what you're overseas. talking about is, is you're still talking about prudential concerns, not principled ones, because uh, there has to be at least some underlying principle that whenever somebody violates federal statute, the reason we have these statutes is because we believe that whenever the part of justice is whenever someone violates one of our laws, we want to prosecute them in our justice system. No, but there are all kinds of reasons why we don't. Why, why is a discretionary matter? We don't do that. But I, I think that has to be the animating principle. I don't think so. I think I think when somebody commits a crime, you have the option of prosecuting them in your justice system. That's an option available to you. You also have the option of deferring to the jurisdiction in which the crime took place, which in this case is. Well, but, uh, or, or the, the battle took place, and which in this rock. case would mean deferring to the Kurds. I sure, think let's flip this around for a minute, though. What if it's not a question of the U.S. asserting a principle that it wants to try its own people? 
and rather, you know, the state that this guy went to to cause harm there, mm -hmm. saying to us, he's your problem. This is your mess. You shouldn't have let him ever get here. And you're the one who has to clean it up. Well, that's, that's the Guantanamo situation where we have the people and we try to get their home states to take responsibility for them. Now, I certainly think if the Kurds want us to take responsibility for him, we should. Yeah. But, but, but Shane's question is, do we have some great interest in taking him, uh, taking him ourselves? And to me, the, the other analog to this is, you know, if you're a U.S. person, say, who get, disappears in Iran and the Iranian government is holding, the United States takes a very strong position that we will advocate for our people to get U.S. people repatriated. Um, I think if you sign up for the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, however, and you end up fighting in Syria and getting, you know, arrested by, you know, moderate Syrian rebels and held, I, I don't think we have a great consular interest in your repatriation at that point. Yeah. So that's one vote for let him rock. <laughs> let him rock. <laughs> it also, I mean, I could, I, I could articulate this sort of Thanks. the political message yeah. argument, which is clarifying, boiling it down. Yeah, right. Ben, <laughs> let him rot with us. There you go. That's the guiding principle. But, but doing that presumably would also be a very effective message to send to would-be American ISIS recruits, saying, "You go over there. Don't you know? Don't come crying back to mommy right. and daddy and saying you, you want to be tried by own. you're on your own, pal. Yeah, and you can spend right. thirty years in a Kurdish prison and see how you like it. That sounds like a line from Airplane." <laughs> you ever spent time in a Kurdish prison? <laughs> that's gonna. That's the new counter-social messaging strategy. Put that on Twitter. Like, you want to spend some time in a Kurdish prison? Joey, have you ever been in a in a Turkish prison? Um. All right. Well, um, have fun in prison, <laughs> Jamal. Uh, let's see. Uh, so this week, disturbing news. If you have been visiting what, New York Times. New York Times, MSN, BBC, and AOL. AOL. Who? What? That was a website once. They. <laughs> then you too may be infected with ransomware. You may indeed. It was ransomware? So, But not lawfare. But not lawfare, and and maybe not if you visited from a Mac. That was a separate incident. But yeah, so so right. So um, the evidence has now emerged over the weekend. Anyone who visited these sites um, potentially interacted with um, malware, ransomware malware that came through third-party ads. Um, and so these are um, you know advertisements that the New York Times just, just basically contracts out. Um, doesn't have a ton of control over what is delivered. Um, it's a very uh, lucrative and attractive. Uh, uh, cybersecurity threat vector, essentially. Um, so my question on this is, um, is one, uh, let's all make sure we've backed up our uh, hard drives if we visited any of these sites. And two, uh, this like really interesting question about sort of third-party ads is emerging right now. Um, Wired, uh, Wired.com uh, has recently elected to ban ad blockers. Um, so ad blockers are the software that a lot of cybersecurity experts say everyone should be using these um, these features to ensure that you don't interact with these ads. Um, the problem is that's the way websites make money. And sort of as um, as journalism uh, moves to an online platform, as we're sort of um, we're seeing more emerging voices, they're saying, well, wait a minute, this is how we make money. Um, and so my question, I think, is just a really sort of interesting clash of. Um, 
of cybersecurity values and potentially First Amendment values. I have uh, security experts in the room. I have a journalist in the room. What do you think? Well, I certainly am, am sympathetic to Wired's position on ad blockers. I'm not advocating one for the Daily Beast. And actually, I don't know if we do or don't allow them. You but do allow them. We do allow them? Okay. I know, because I go and I block your You ads. block the shit out of those <laughs> That's in, And we should say, like, it's like the little like little blue box that shows up in the corner of the ad that lets you block. You, you're talking about an overall blocker. No, no, no. This installed. is like an ad blocker that you use okay, on you your Okay, you got computer, one installed. Because right? so sometimes you can I close read your stuff the individual and I don't ads. Pay for it. Okay. Well, thanks. We, I really, but I do read your thanks. stuff. All yeah, of it. my my cats appreciate that, and my mortgage <laughs> does too. Um, but no, I mean, I like I, I'm sympathetic to it because I mean, look, I mean, none of us have figured out the, the revenue model, and I've been in this business 17 years today. Actually, it's my my anniversary. Yeah, happy anniversary! Thank you. Uh, and I and I've never had a moment in this business where anyone has a freaking clue about what the actual revenue model is and how the business is going to work. That said. Um, I do think it's, to some degree, isn't it incumbent upon publishers to make sure that their ads are not feeding right. viruses to if people? You're and there are ways, computers. by the way, for companies to find that out. I right. mean, this is actually a very pr- productive and growing segment of the cybersecurity industry is people who look for adware and ransomware and find it in these places that are being delivered up to people without their knowledge. And, you know, companies probably have an obligation, I think, or at least, you know, well, maybe they, a duty to readers to try and root that stuff and, out. And if they don't, I mean, I, it seems to me that this is a problem that the free market can deal with pretty easily because companies should do that if they're smart. If they don't, people will learn to yeah. avoid their sites for fear of malware. And, in fact, I went on the New York Times site this weekend on my phone and I got this weird pop-up asking me to interact, and I couldn't make it go away, and I sure as hell wasn't going to click OK. Mm. So I even uninstalled Chrome from my phone to get rid of it. Wow. See, excellent cybersecurity practices. Thank you. Round of applause for Tammy. Thank yeah. you, thank yeah. you, thank nice. you. I'm, I'm an educated consumer, but the point is educated consumers will move away from websites that can't guarantee their safety. And so either they will find some other way of generating revenue that doesn't open up this threat, or they will find ways of reassuring but, but users that, just that mean, they've taken care of this Doesn't that threat. just mean big, giant companies like the New York Times are going to be able to have secure sites, and then sites that are less able to, uh, to invest in that kind of practices, right, sort of things that, um, that give alternative voices are going to be... Well, but I, I, I think there's an antecedent question here, which is whether there's civil liability for a site that's feeding you malware. Sure. You know, so when you, well, it's not, you know, when you, when you use software, there's no liability to the software companies, even if that software jumps out of the computer and bites you and, you know, draws blood. Um, and the question is... Internet of things. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the Internet of this vampire is, things. This is the cyber version of the hot McDonald's coffee. Exactly. Yeah. And so here's... I, I mean, I think what one, one possibility is that the New York Times is not a software provider. It's a website. And um, I don't... It would be interesting to look at your, their terms of service as to... The terms of, as to what you're immunizing them against, mm. and I suspect you're not immunizing against them against, you know, them being a platform for uh, malware that eats for, your for, computer, for malware yeah. distribution that eats your computer. Now, interesting question: whether Congress has immunized them for that um, in in Communications Decency Act. But I think there's an I, th- I think there's a there's an interesting antecedent question here as to whether 
the right answer to this is for somebody to sue the crap out of them. And by the way, sue the crap out of the advertisers too. You know, the advertising agencies, which are the direct propagators. Right. The, the but is the important thing serving it, or is it um, is it circumventing the protection? Right. So the real controversy is not just about using third party ads. It's about um, sites that ban ad blockers. So they they actually are forcing, forcing you to, you to look not at the ads. use the protection. Yeah. Right. So no, no. But 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 my point is, you could address the problem. It's possible to imagine addressing the problem of these, uh, you know, the cybersecurity dangers without choosing between, use, without choosing to use ad blockers if the civil liability regime were, 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 were properly situated. I agree with you. There's this other issue, which is, hey, some people don't want to see ads and some people don't want to engage these third-party servers. Uh, they do want to read the Daily Beast or the New York Times. So is it appropriate for Wired to be, you know, basically blocking people from making that choice? But I'm not sure that I'm not sure that the choice is quite as stark as the cybersecurity versus First Amendment values that you're describing, because there is this intermediate possibility. You know, fine, let them let, let them serve ads, but understand that they're civilly liable if they screw up your computer. I like that. I think that's a good free market solution. I'm not advocating that anyone test this with my employer. <laughs> Go to Daily Beast, read their ads, and click then sue on them. them. Get infected, sue people. Oh, God. That's what Trump would advocate. Just he, sue him. Oh, he would totally advocate yeah. that. Yeah. By the way, there's not this, him, though. Right. There's this great Trump Hamilton sketch by this comedy troupe at Brown that's on the internet now. By the oh, way. no, I gotta find that. You gotta find them. Just run through it. Trump Hamilton, find it. Uh, all right, let's go on to object lessons. Um, ben, do you want to go first? Well, my object lesson, as promised last week, when my object lesson was a car to go pick up a puppy, we drove 1,500 miles in two days, which I have never done before, to rural Kentucky, where I have never been before, to pick up a puppy. We drove back with the puppy. And the pup everyone lived to tell the tale. Everyone lived to tell see. the tale. The puppy, as you can see, if you go to our show page, here Aww. he is. He's very sweet. Very He's sweet. mighty cute. Uh, the older dog is quite annoyed by his presence. <laughs> growls <laughs> at him. As is his prerogative. <laughs> yes. Uh, and um, now we're all back. So my object lesson uh, on the theory that puppies calm everybody down is a puppy. Very cute puppy, too. Who should we send puppies to this year to calm mm. them down? Marco well, Rubio. Marco Rubio. Marco Rubio could, <laughs> use, oh, a Marco Rubio could use a dog. He could Aww. use a puppy for sure. Oh, did you, you want a friend in Washington? Yeah, get, get a, a dog. dog. He might need Marco. like a litter of dogs. Did you see him? Oh, I don't he know looked, that he needs he a friend crushed. in Washington any longer. <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, Speaking of calming people down, I'm going to rile people up with my object lesson, which is this article, Terror Threat, Entire Washington, D.C. Metro system to shut down for 29 hours oh, any minute God, for, we didn't quote, talk about this. emergency equipment inspection. <sighs> so this is from sort of um, like a kind of, uh, let's say, conspiracy-minded uh, internet uh, publication. I suppose it was inevitable. By Frank right. <laughs> that these are, right, but um, as you may or may not be, may, may or may not uh, be aware, the entire D.C. metro system shut down rather unexpectedly. Right. If you were living under a rock, you might not be aware <laughs> yeah. that Washingtonians have been it's kind of a big deal. <laughs> so 
One, the inevitable conspiracy theories, right, of, oh, you had some sort of credible threat. The FBI has said this is not the case. Um, so two, the question Yeah, a credible of, threat that the frickin' Metro is going to catch on fire. <laughs> this is my whole point, right? Like, does it really make it... Like, we're talking about the whole Metro catching, catching on fire because, like, these huge electrical wires apparently have no insulation. They found three points of, like, major yeah. immediate failure. I was just, just um, like, we could never have done this. Right, so it's like the funny focus on, like, the sort of... Um, the over-focus on the notion of this is a terror threat yeah. versus the notion of actually crumbling infrastructure is itself a relatively serious threat to yeah. um, to public yeah. safety. Uh, I did not come into the office yesterday. I don't know if either of you... I did not go into the, the office yesterday. Uh, I don't use Metro, so I didn't have that problem. Yeah. City and dwelling. Ben just City segued living. in. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. I... I... I uh, drove to Charlottesville yesterday. Oh, right. Okay. He got out of Dodge. But not on the cycle. <laughs> not on the cycle. Uh, tomorrow. Okay. Well, um, my object lesson is a PDF that popped up uh, yesterday evening or this morning on the New York Times. Last night, yeah. Last night on the New York Wednesday Times night. website, mm-hmm. uh, which is a transcript of Bo Bergdahl's interrogation by the U.S. military uh, after his return to U.S. custody. Um, and uh, I haven't read it yet. Um, I, I have to admit that uh, I'm very curious, um, both because, well, mostly because I, I think his motivations are still such a mystery to me. And it may just be that he was unbalanced, but um, so really I have curious. perused it. I haven't read it. It's a very long document. Mm-hmm. Um, I've sort of perused it. I, I think it sort of it speaks to the notion that there is clearly some kind of um, unbalanced or mental, like to the extent and previously diagnosed. Right. Apparently, yeah. his his attorney Shane, you're nodding. His attorney released these documents. Yeah, Eugene Fidel, who's his attorney, released these. The Times, I guess, have been trying to get them through a FOIA request, and he released it. It looks in part to point out that the army knowingly enlisted this guy when they knew that he had had a previous mental condition that got him kicked out of the Coast Guard. Wow. And so raising the question of whether or not um, they should have done that. And and, and pointing out, too, that nowhere in this 300-page-plus transcript is it ever contemplated that he would be charged with misbehavior before the enemy, which is the most serious charge that he faces. Mm -hmm. So great example of, like, your lawyer, like, doing some pretty good, like, public lawyering, I think. Yeah, some PR lawyering. Yeah, it's an, it an interesting move. We'll see um, how that, and then of course the serial coverage, um, ultimately yeah. impacts the, the case because um, these are some uh, risky strategic moves that are being made. Yeah, I interviewed Eugene Fidel on a totally different thing like a month ago, and I said, "Hey, you watching the serial podcast?" He's like, "I don't talk about it." <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, "Now I know you were <laughs> waiting. Oh, episode eight is coming." Boom! Here's the transcript. <laughs> you know, here we go. Uh, so my object actually is a letter, uh, also in a PDF form, uh, from the acting secretary of the Army to Senator Mark Warner, uh, informing him of an update in a story I think I've talked about on the podcast before. Stephanie Rader, who was the 100-year-old uh, OSS precursor right. to the CIA veteran who had been trying to get the Legion of Merit, or her friends had been trying to get it for her. She died recently. Uh, so uh, it'll be a posthumous award if it happens. But the update is, as Secretary of the Army informed the senator, um, that he has directed the um, Deputy Chief of Staff for Personnel, who is the person in charge of such things, to open a full and thorough review of her case. Wow. And so basically they're going to go back through it. Um, this, this whole process has been hard by the fact that 
Um, Stephanie's records, many of them were destroyed in this very famous fire at the National Archives in the 1970s, which wiped out a whole slew of World War II veterans' records, including my grandfather's, it turns out. Hmm. Uh, so, yeah, it looks like Stephanie Rader is one step closer to getting her Legion of Merit. That's a nice That's story. That's a like very nice story. Yeah. I think it's important to go back and recognize the contributions of women. Yeah, like, totally. And, and, and especially because in this case it looks like the evidence is pretty significant that she may have been overlooked or, den- or denied the Medal Legion of Merit because she was a woman. Uh-huh. And also because she was in the OSS, which back then we forget was this sort of upstart yeah. right. intelligence group in the military looked at and said, what is this? And how could you possibly be doing anything that would be Julia worthy Child, of... Julia Child, wasn't Julia Child. And I think they were maybe friends. I think that definitely ups yeah. the cool factor. Totally. For sure. Definitely. Totally. Anyway, uh, Stephanie Rader, you're one step closer. All right, that brings us to the end of the show. Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions, and you can find our show archive at SpaghettiOnTheWallProductions.com. Uh, please download the podcast and leave us a rating and a review. It helps to spread the word. You can follow us on Twitter at R-A-T-L Security. Thanks for all of your great tweets this week and all weeks. It's really helpful. We love hearing from you guys. Um, the show is edited by Jen Howell. Our music was performed this week by Frank Gaffney and the Mad Blockers. The <laughs> <laughs> Mad Blockers or the Ad Blockers? No, the Mad Blockers. The mad blockers. Yeah. Like they're... Mad. Got it. Ah, got it. You got it. Got you got it. it. You've had a long trip. It's okay. Yeah. <laughs> Been a lot of driving. He's a little lately. slow today. Yeah. No, of course, our uh, music was performed by Sophia Yan. And, and the maybe, ad blockers. And the ad blockers. <laughs> and yeah, maybe your puppy plays piano. <laughs> <laughs> have you asked? Maybe the puppy could be the. Uh, he the, does have very long toes. We've got to get the puppy together with our, our rational security listening dog. Yeah. In Austin, yeah. Texas. Oh, that's right. They who, need to become our new show avatar. Who, by the way, the, um, the, the, uh, a gentleman approached me at the last Hoover Book Soiree and said, you know that guy who approached you in, in Texas whose dog listens to the show? And I said, yeah, that's my cousin. Whoa, wow. really? Yeah. It's a family business. It's a family business. It's a family affair. So I was, I, I was moved. Uh, we have wow. like this extended. Does he have a dog? I didn't know. Like you need to get him a dog and make him listen to the podcast. <laughs> Things so work We have better. a whole family of, of, of people and dogs, dogs listening listen to yeah, the podcast. If you are a dog, please download and rate the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Follow us on Twitter. Or pause. On behalf of my friends, Ben Wittes, Tamara Kaufman Wittes, and Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris. We will talk to you next week. Thanks for listening. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.